O awesome God, we bow before you and acknowledge your greatness, your majesty, your power, your sovereignty, your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness. How great thou art. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. Nelson Mandela taught us forgiveness on a grand scale. Mourners hail Nelson Mandela's courage, conviction, remarkable lack of bitterness. Nelson Mandela, icon of reconciliation and forgiveness. I want to talk to you this morning about truth, reconciliation, and forgiveness. And one last commendation here, one writer says, when someone you have known or loved dies, there seems to occur a great tearing in the fabric of your world, a weird emptiness opens for a moment and then the impatient air rushes in quickly to fill the momentary vacuum. Soon life picks up its rhythms again and you learn to live with a sad absence. What if that tearing is not directly personal? Not one's immediate own. What if the great absence is felt by everybody of the world as seemingly personal? as everyone's own, what if the hole left behind cannot be filled? If the shape of the person is too huge, so important to our sense of what it is to be correctly human. That's where we now stand with Nelson Mandela's death. History stops, kneels, and bows its head. His like is rare in all of human history. 27 years of his life was stolen from him when he was in his prime, imprisoned and persecuted and, dare I say, tortured. But no bitterness, only total forgiveness. Can I change the subject for a moment and ask you this question? Have you ever wondered what God was doing before the foundation of the world? That's a thought, isn't it? What on earth was he doing? Or what in heaven was he doing? We get the answer in John chapter 17. Christ praying his high priestly prayer in verse 24. He says, before the foundations of the world, you, Father, loved me. Before this world was created, before the cosmos, before the heavens and the earth as we know it, God was loving his Son, God the Father. You see, there's never been a time when Christ didn't exist, the second person of the Trinity. There's never been a time when 
the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, didn't exist. There's never been a time when God the Father didn't exist. We don't worship a single person God. We worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before time, before creation, there was this cascading of the love of God the Father to the Son and to the Spirit. There's no greater description of God in the whole Bible, no greater description than God is love. Before he created this world and humankind, he was loving in that relationship, that divine relationship, the Trinity. It is the most remarkable doctrine in Scripture. I was on the phone to Dr. R.T. Kendall yesterday. I said, how do you describe the Trinity, R.T.? He said, you can't. It's unfathomable. It's a beautiful truth. That love existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So then God created the world as we know it. The planets, the cosmos, the billions of galaxies. We will never know with our human minds what is exactly out there. But the Bible is quite clear that God made it by, in, through, and for the Son. It was like an eternal birthday present. Can you imagine it? Saturn and Mars and the sun and the moon and the earth and the beauty of the earth and all the countries of the earth. God made it by and for and through for the sun. And if that wasn't enough, then they said, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. Male and female, Adam and Eve, created, handmade by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in the image and likeness of the eternal God. And God intended to populate the earth with lots and lots and lots of Adam and Eves. Coming down in the cool of the evening, God communing with Adam personally, But dear Adam and Eve, bless them, they got it wrong. They rebelled, they disobeyed, they sinned and started a chain of events that we're experiencing and living with to this day. Original sin set in. Every one of us is born with that taint, that trace of original sin. When you see a newborn baby, And Celia and I are about to be grandparents for the first time. We have a granddaughter on the way. She was due yesterday. (laughs) She may be being born even as I preach. (laughs) Grandpa! Yes! And may God grant me many more! And we'll look at that little baby, and it, it, it'll look perfect. But as soon as that child has a will to exercise, that child will say no. And my son Daniel and his lovely wife Hannah will have no problems with that little baby's willpower. It's with her won't power that they have a problem. Every one of us 
has experienced this in our own lives. We do the things we shouldn't do and do the things we don't want to do and we don't do the things and that's traced back to Adam and Eve. So what was God going to do to retrieve, recover the situation? There was only one way. Can I say figuratively, it wasn't the best way, it was the only way for the son to come and be born as a human being to live and to die on the cross to bear away the sins of the whole world. Now soon we'll be celebrating Christmas. The shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Joseph who were the first to see Jesus. Who was the first to recognize him having arrived on this earth? Well, Mary was a virgin. She had no sexual relationship. She was engaged to Joseph to be married. And in that state of virginity, the Holy Spirit came upon her. And by the power of the Spirit, she conceived baby Jesus in her womb. At one stage, Christ was too small to see with the naked eye. That his willingness to submit. That the moment the Holy Spirit came on Elizabeth, on Mary, she went straight to see her cousin, Elizabeth, who was also a bit further on in pregnancy. And Elizabeth tells Mary, the moment you walked into my company with the Messiah, just conceived, John leapt in my womb, my baby leapt in my womb. So the first person to recognize the Messiah on earth was an unborn child in Elizabeth's womb. Isn't that fantastic? If I needed any persuasion that life is sacred from conception, it's there for me. So Christ was willing to grow for nine months, be born as a babe, helpless babe, grow as a child and a teenager into his 20s and his 30s, and then that time he disclosed who he was and came onto the, the scene, as it were, for three years proclaiming the truth of the Father wanting to forgive and the perfect son of God who'd never committed a sin was found guilty and sentenced to death and died on the cross. The devil thought he got it. The devil was thrilled to bits. Got him. Killed him. The only son of God. Yes. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. Three days later, not all the demons in hell could hold Christ down. He rose to new life, never to die again. The saddest day in hell for eternity was that morning when Christ arose to new life and ascended back to the Father. And there, waiting us, he's now waiting for us to come home. Us Christians, born into the family of God, totally forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, totally dependent on the sacrifice and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We are part of God's family. And in that John 17 high priestly prayer, time and time again, Jesus says, Father, Father. And the Aramaic is Abba. And it's understandable that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, only begotten of the Father, should address his Father in Aramaic as Abba. Now we turn the pages over to the book of Romans, the most remarkable explanation of the Christian gospel ever known to humankind. And in chapter 8, in verse 15, Paul the Apostle is writing in Koine Greek. The whole of Romans is written in Koine Greek. So he's writing away and he suddenly says, we have not received the spirit of slavery, We've 
received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Peter? That's the Greek. He's writing in Greek. No, no. Suddenly changes from Greek to Aramaic for one word in the whole epistle. Abba. In other words, in coming into a living relationship with God, you can call him Father in the same way as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of the God, can call him Abba, Father. You become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. This is awesome. Eternal life isn't something you pick up at the gate before you board the plane for heaven. Eternal life is now, knowing the Father and the Son, you can have eternal life. There is no more remarkable experience a human being can enjoy than knowing God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, being in an intimate relationship with them. That's what's called being a Christian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is looking for millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of children, sons and daughters of the living God, you, me. And it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He, he, he knew that we'd be here today and all the other congregations of all the ages. And he can't wait for us to be in heaven with him where we will share with him in the glory of God. That's what we've got to look forward to in heaven. Now what about on earth? We've been reconciled to God. We now need to be reconciled with one another. Every day of the week, seven days a week, 365 days, 316 a leap year. I pray the Lord's Prayer. Will you pray it with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Now you could be forgiven for thinking or asking the question, what is the most important petition in that prayer? And you could be forgiven for thinking it's this. It's the theme, when the prayer is over, Jesus returns to one theme from that prayer, only one. And it's that theme of forgiveness. And Jesus says, if you forgive others, they are trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, they are trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's heavy. It doesn't mean you'll go to hell. It doesn't mean your eternal security is in jeopardy. It just means you rob yourself of present day inheritance that's your right and it's your privilege and God wants to give you. If you hold on to resentment, if I hold on to resentment and fail to forgive, I rob myself of blessings here and now on earth before I die, before I go to heaven. And it is one of the hardest 
things to do. Particularly if you've been seriously abused or maligned or lied about or money's been stolen from you. Maybe you've been physically abused, emotionally abused or sexually abused. You may have been raped. You cannot forget the torment and the terror. And you'll never forget. It's one of the hardest things in the world to forgive when I can't forget. But I'm afraid we've got no option. If you have received the forgiveness of God and you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you can hold on to any amount of resentment you like. If you're not a Christian today, wallow in it. Sink deep into resentment and hate and anger and justification and revenge. Wallow in it. Nelson Mandela as a Christian, he didn't. What a, I heard on the radio this morning that the state funeral that's going to take place will be the most remarkable in the history of the world. Can you believe that? This dear man. What a testimony, what a witness. And furthermore, the Bible says, love your enemies. And on Friday in the care office, I did something I've never done before. Got the staff together. We, we normally meet together to pray, so that was, that was normal on a Friday. And I said, let's list all our enemies, all those organizations, individuals who hate care and who hate what we stand for, the marriage and the family and the sanctity of human life and the protection of the vulnerable and safety of trafficked boys and girls and children with special needs and adults who are infirm and terminally ill and dying and lonely. They hate us for it. Let's name them. And one after another, we named individuals and organizations that hate care and wish we would be swept off the face of the earth. And then we paused. And we prayed for them. No other religion in the world is remotely interested in this sort of stuff. But this is what Jesus taught us. Such is the greatness of God's forgiveness. It eclipses even just the small incidents in our lives. It includes the enemies. You may not know of any particular enemy that you have. You may. Maybe, maybe out to destroy you. Pray for them. Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you. Well, I was on the phone yesterday to Dr. R.T. Kendall. He rang me. And I told him I'm going to preach on the theme of reconciliation and forgiveness. And he said to me, tell them about my book, God Meant It For Good. Tell them about the seven principles of total forgiveness. And he said, tell the congregation, I wrote it down as he said it, I can't wait to come to London. Hallelujah, he's 77 next birthday. He's busier than he's ever been. He's preaching more powerfully than I've seen him in 25 years. And he said, tell the congregation, I sympathize with them having to put up with Lyndon Bowring today. I wrote it down. <laughs> and his book, God Meant for Good, is a story of the life of Joseph. Joseph was another Nelson Mandela. He was the son of Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's sweetheart. 
Oh boy, did he fall in love with this girl. But for some strange reason, he had to marry Leah before he was allowed to have Rachel. It's a bit complicated. And Rachel, he only had to look at her and she got pregnant. I mean, he had to do more than look at her, but you understand me. She, she got pregnant very easily. She gave him ten boys. And Rachel, this dear girl, the joy of his life, his real, when he was alone with her, he was in heaven. She gave him Joseph and Benjamin. And in childbirth, she died. And Jacob spoiled these two boys terribly. Didn't help, wasn't a good dad in that sense. And they got very arrogant, Joseph particularly, very conceited, boastful. And these ten brothers, who were the daughter, sons of Leah, who, Joseph, who Jacob didn't particularly like, they hated Joseph and Benjamin. And one day, Joseph was sent by his father. He had the lovely, remember the Technicolor dream coat? Yep, he had that beautiful coat of many colors. And the brothers saw him coming and they said, let's kill him. Here's our chance to kill him. They hated him. They said, let's kill him. We can dip his coat in blood, take it back to father and let father think that some wild animal killed him and all we left with was the coat. Reuben intervened and cut a long story short. A bunch of merchants were coming by. They sold him into slavery. He gets taken to Egypt. Boys go home, tell us the dad I'm so sorry. Cutting a long story short, Joseph imprisoned. He's working for Potiphar, a senior man in the household of Pharaoh. And Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. <laughs> Guys, can you imagine this? Day after day, Potiphar's wife was saying, come to bed with me. Lie with me, make love to me, day after day after day. And Joseph couldn't, he couldn't. He knew he would be offending Potiphar, his boss, the woman's husband, and more importantly, offending God. And in the end, she grabbed hold of him. She was so desperate. She said, come and lie with me. And Joseph said, get out of here. And he left his garment behind in her hands. When her husband comes home, she said, look, he came to rape me. And Joseph gets in prison for being a man of integrity and purity and honesty. He gets in prison. Chains around his neck and his ankles. Cut a long story short, God has mercy on him and gives him the gift of interpretation of dreams. Pharaoh, the emperor of Egypt, has this incredible dream. He can't even remember what the dream was, or if he did remember the dream, he needed someone to interpret. Nobody, no magician, no astrologer could interpret it. Somebody remembered Joseph in prison. They got him out, dusted him down, washed him, put some clean clothes on him, brought him into the company of Pharaoh, and Joseph explained Pharaoh's dream. Joseph said, you've got seven years famine coming, but before the seven years of famine, there's seven years of plenty, and what you need to do is build your barns, build your granaries full for seven years so you can maintain food supplies during the seven lean years. Well, Pharaoh was so impressed. He actually made him, one minute he's in prison, the next minute he's made governor of all Egypt. And doubtless he would have dressed in Egyptian cotton. Is there any nicer cotton? 
thousand thread count. Egyptian cotton with gold braid. He probably had one of those Egyptian beards. Probably had a gold hat. He had the makeup of an emperor or a governor. Meanwhile, the famine reaches Jacob and the boys back at the ranch. Jacob sends the ten sons up to Egypt to buy corn. And Joseph is personally overseeing all the distribution of the grain that he'd stored for seven years. And he recognizes his brothers. They come in. He's speaking in Egyptian. He speaks with an interpreter. They don't recognize him. Cutting a long story short, Joseph says, Out! Clear the room. Nobody in here except these men. And he says to them, I'm Joseph. He starts to speak in their language for the first time. They freeze on the spot. This boy that they wanted to murder, they send into slavery, thinking, ha, ah, ah, ha, ah. ha, But the first point of the seven principles of RT is, if you truly forgive someone, you won't talk about them. You won't tell other people about them. You may need to have a confident, a pastor, a counselor or two. But after that, if you've truly forgiven, you don't tell what's been done to you. Joseph didn't want anybody to know what these boys had done. And then he said, come close. <laughs> and as they came close, they looked into his eyes and they could see it was Joseph. He didn't want them to fear him. That's the second principle of total forgiveness. Thirdly, he encouraged them to forgive themselves. He says, don't be angry. He lets them save face. He said, God meant it for good. Look where I am now. I'm governor of Egypt. God showed me the interpretation of the Pharaoh's dream. I've got these seven years stored of grain. It was feeding the then known world. How fantastic. And then he said, go and bring dad. Bring dad up. Bring brother Benjamin as well. And then he, when they all came together, he, he fell on Benjamin and he wept and he wept and he wept. My baby brother, he hadn't seen for so many years. Then he fell on the necks of each one of those boys, those boys who'd sought to murder him. He just put his arms around them and cried tears of love, just like Nelson Mandela forgave those who sought to kill and torture And finally, he blessed them. Okay, Jacob and the boys and their families, their wives, kids, servants, maids, cattle, the lot came to live in Goshen in Egypt. Joseph looked after them. It was the plushest part of Egypt. They were living the life of O'Reilly. Couldn't believe their luck. Jacob lived for another 17 years. And then he died. The boys knew The chips were down. Now the dad's out of the way. So they lied through their teeth. They came to see Joseph and said, Oh, by the way, dad said something to us before he died. He said nothing at all. But they said, Dad said, Have mercy on us, now I'm gone. Dad didn't even know. Joseph never told his father what those boys had done. And Joseph blessed them. 
What a wonderful testimony. Total forgiveness. And today, the point that RT makes there is total forgiveness is a life sentence. Because when you've totally forgiven somebody, you go away, you go on holiday, or you go to bed, or you go to sleep, suddenly out of nowhere comes that reminder of what they did to you, and, and the resentment wells up inside you. And if you're a non-Christian, hang on to it. Wallow in it. But if you're a Christian, I'm sorry, no. You've got to once again ask God to give you the grace and the strength to totally forgive them. And this might happen every month, every year. It'll certainly happen for as long as you live. It's a lifetime, a life sentence. For 17 years, Joseph continued to love his brothers and forgive his brothers and never tell his father what they did to him. And when you think of what's happening in the Philippines right now, it's understandable that some people were saying, God, why did you allow it? Family, friends, thousands of people have been killed because of this tsunami. And it may be that you or they will need to say, God, I forgive you. The resentment I feel in my heart because you could have stopped this. You could have prevented it. And you say, respectfully, God, I forgive you. It may be that you have to forgive yourself. I don't know exactly what your circumstances are, but sometimes when we look back on our lives, the mess we've got ourselves in is self-inflicted. It's the decisions we took, the person we went with, or the place we went to, or the job we took, or the money we accepted, or... So you maybe need to forgive yourself. In fact, when R.T. wrote his first book, Totally, Total Forgiveness, he then realized there was resentment in people's hearts towards God, so he wrote Totally Forgiving God. And then he realized that people had pains in their hearts towards themselves. So he's written three books, Total Forgiveness, Totally Forgiving God, Totally Forgiving Yourself, and all three are powerful tomes. He very kindly lets me see the manuscripts before they go to the publishers. He's got three new books coming out. In Pursuit of His Wisdom, The Power of Humility. <gasps> that was a hard one. It's a book about pride. And I realized reading this manuscript that pride is the only deadly sin I don't know I'm committing. All the other ones I know I'm committing. No doubt about it at all. No gray areas. I know it's wrong the way I'm thinking or the way I'm conducting myself. But pride, and this is amazing. And then on top of that, he's got this new book on the Holy Spirit called Holy Fire. It's a fantastic book. It's the greatest book I've ever read on the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a worldwide bestseller. So there we are, advanced warning. Ultimate wisdom, power of humility, and holy fire. Wonderful. Hopefully they'll be on sale as soon as they are published totally forgiving God totally forgiving yourself I want to conclude if I may by reading a, a true incident I'm going to ask the worship team to come to the platform I'm going to ask you to stand with me would you stand with me while I read this testimony And when I've finished reading it, I'm just going to pause for maybe half a minute 
and I just want you to quietly talk to God. I'm not going to make an appeal. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm not going to ask you to speak to anybody unless you need to. There are counselors here. And by the way, if you're not a Christian and you are longing to come into this living relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit through Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, talk to somebody with a red hand. They'll lead you to somebody who can pray for you to make today the first day of the rest of your life. Today, potentially, the single most important day of your whole life, past and present and future. And then I'll just say, in Jesus' name, amen, and then the worship team will lead us. I want to read you a true story. A frail, black woman stands slowly to her feet. She is something over 70 years of age. Facing her from across the room are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr. Van der Berk, has just been tried by the court and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. It was indeed Mr. Van der Berk, it has now been established, who had come to the woman and her home a number of years back taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then burned the young man's body on a fire while he and his officer partied nearby. Several years later, Mr. Vandenberg and his cohorts had returned to take away her husband as well. For many months, she heard nothing of his whereabouts. Then, almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Mr. Vandenberg comes back to fetch the woman herself. How vividly she remembers that evening, going down to the place beside a river where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten, still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as the officers poured gasoline over his live body and set him aflame. Father, forgive them. And now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Van der Berk, a member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, turns to her and asks her, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman, calmly but confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses, then continues, my husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vandenberg to become my son. I'd like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining within me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. I'd like Mr. Vandenberg to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive 
this was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so I can take Mr. Vandenberg in my arms, embrace him, and let him know he's truly forgiven. As the court assistants come to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vandenberg, overwhelmed by what he's just heard, faints. And as he does, those in the courtroom, friends, family, neighbors, all victim of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.